0: Well, this morning, I want to start off, I want to talk about someone. I want to talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, how many of you would have thought that that was the words that were coming out of my mouth after I said I wanted to talk about someone, okay? That's your 2022 bingo card. You can check off Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want to talk about Arnold. If you don't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, he was a professional bodybuilder, was a professional actor, was a professional politician. And I don't really know what he's up to at this point. I could talk about his movies and his favorite, famous catchphrases, I'll be back. Or, it is not a tumor, right? That's the best I'm gonna, you're going to get from me. I'm not going to do any other impressions. But we talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why on earth, on Father's Day, reading Psalm 87, as we are starting into our songs of the summer, why on earth are we talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's a very good question, and I intend to answer it here in a moment. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, yes, was a bodybuilder, yes, was an actor, and later on became governor of California. While he was governor, they called him the governator, which I thought was kind of a fun name for him, he ran the state of California, our most populous state, also our most liberal state, and he was a moderate. And people looked at Arnold and said, wow. Wow. If he can get those two groups to come together, he would make a great president. And so during this time, there were all sorts of discussions about Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming our president. And I kind of died a little on the inside. Now, not for the reason you'd think, because I used to teach government and civics. And one of the things that I taught was I taught what are the benefits of being an American citizen? And being an American citizen, whether you were born here or not, there are all sorts of benefits, right? If you are what's called a naturalized citizen, meaning you were born somewhere else, you became a U.S. citizen, you can vote, you can pay taxes, yay, you can run for office, you can hold any office in the land except for one. And that one office is limited to the people who were born here called natural Citizens, not naturalized, but natural citizens. And a natural citizen is not what Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Arnold, as you can tell by his accent, he was born in Austria, and that's where he spent most of his life. So, no matter how hard Arnold wants to be president, no matter how many talking heads on the TV want him to be president, he can't be president. Because to be the president of the United States, you have to have been born. In the United States, it's the one thing that makes the president different than all other positions of office. And I bring this up because today we're looking at what it takes to become a citizen of God's kingdom. There are two kinds of citizens of God's kingdom there would be the naturalized, these are those who maybe kind of are brought in, and then there's those who are born into the kingdom. Arnold Schwarzenegger. For all of his great catchphrases and somewhat great movies, he will never be president of our United States because he was not born here. God's kingdom is not about where you were born. God's kingdom is not about the color of your skin. God's kingdom is not about whether you're born in the West or the East, whether you're male or you're female, rich or poor, able-bodied or handicapped. It's about where you have been born again. Have you been born again? And today in our psalm, as we kick off the songs of the summer, as we look at all of these psalms over this summer, this first one is a great one to remind us of the good news. Christianity is not a white person religion. Christianity is not a 21st century religion. Christianity is not a male-dominated religion. It is a religion for everyone, everywhere. It is the picture of diversity. As a matter of fact, one non-Christian scholar said, Christianity is the most diverse religion in the history of the world, and second place isn't even close. This is the religion. This is the, the faith that we have. And as we look at this psalm today, we need to understand the Bible is specific on how we get into the kingdom, but it is general on who is allowed to come in. It is general. Every single person that we encounter can come into this kingdom. And praise be to God for that because I don't know that any of us are Jewish. And if it was based on being a part of Israel, none of us get in. But praise be to God, His Son opened the gates, and He, the one truly born in the kingdom individual, Jesus, has now grafted us in because of His death and resurrection. So here's our big picture story, big picture idea. There is joy for those who are born again into Zion. There is joy for those who are born again into Zion. See, Psalm 87 is a a summary of the best news. The best news is our birth certificates, yes, we're born here, maybe we're born in England, maybe we're born somewhere else, but we get a new birth certificate. We get born into the kingdom via what Christ did on the cross. We get to be citizens of the most desirous place in the history of the universe. So, this is the point of this psalm. The nations are going to come to Zion. Eventually, all of them are going to acknowledge there is a God. Some will acknowledge it on their way to eternal damnation. Others will acknowledge it as they enter into eternal rest and peace. This is what this psalm is all about. So, what exactly is this psalm saying? I, originally, I had talked to Christian earlier in the week, and I said, why don't we have Frank read the psalm, and then we'll, at the Selah, which is a musical interlude, we'll have you guys play some music, and you guys can, can pray about and think about and meditate on the psalm. And I think that it sounds cool, and we will do it some time in the future. But this psalm is hard for us to understand, because there's all sorts of words that we don't get. And so instead of subjugating you guys to that and you're going, how do I meditate on Zion? What does that even mean? Isn't that somewhere in Utah? <laughs> right? Or, or, or meditate on Rahab. Isn't that a prostitute from Jericho? Uh, and, and Cush? Isn't that, should, that, is that the thing I sit on? What, what, right? So we have all of these words that we don't know. So instead of doing that, I'm going to explain it to you. And as we go through, recognize that each of those laws is a place where you're supposed to stop And Think about so I encourage you later as you go back to this psalm after I've kind of hopefully Untangled some of the knots of these words you can go back and dwell on each of these sections because This is the gospel in a nutshell for us today So the first question we need to deal with is what is Zion? Well, Zion is not in Utah. I'm sorry the Mormon prophet got it wrong Zion is not a place in Utah. Zion is the name of Jerusalem. And we see this in the Bible. In uh, 2 Samuel 5, 7, the city of David and Zion are called the same thing. So Jerusalem was controlled by a group called the Jebusites. And David came in and conquered it. And when David conquered it in 2 Samuel, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Zion being a hill, which is the city of Jerusalem. And that is the city of David. He renamed it the city of David. Then in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the ark there. Now why is that important? Why is the ark of the covenant being in Jerusalem and Zion important? Well, the, the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament was he made his presence most directly known, most directly felt where the ark was. And it was a a visual symbol for Israelites that God is with us, but it was also the place that he made his presence most clearly felt. And so Zion, Jerusalem, became the hub of being close to God. It's the center of worship. The word Zion is used over 150 times in the Old Testament, and about 99% of the time it's used for Jerusalem. And here's some more examples of this. It, It... well, before I get into that, the, the word Zion, though, is not a proper name. It's a description, right? So just like with, with Portland, we've got Rip City, right, Rusty? All right. Rip City, okay? We've got City of Roses, okay? We've got Stumptown. We've got nicknames for it. And those are nicknames, and Zion's not even really a nickname. Zion is a description. It, it means the place where God is, So that this term is not just another name for Jerusalem; it's describing what Jerusalem is. It's the place where God made Himself most clearly present. And we see this, and we see lots of discussion of Zion in the Psalms. Psalm fifty-one, David says, "Do good to Zion in your good pleasure; build up the walls of Jerusalem." Psalm nine, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. That's His throne. Zion was the place that God chose. In in Psalm 78, which we looked at a summer ago, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. Psalm 74, remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. It's called a mountain because it was literally at the top of a mountain. Jerusalem is built on a mountain. Not so much a mountain anymore, thanks to all of the sediment being moved around, but it was a mountain. So God came and stayed in a place to be near his people. This is what Zion is. This is what Jerusalem is. So, of course, Israelites reached out and said, Zion is where our help comes from. And there's countless Psalms on this. Psalm 20, may he send you help from his sanctuary, give you support from Zion. Psalm 3, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. That's Zion. So deliverance is found there. So this Zion is not just a cool name. It's like, hey, there's Mount Tabor, right? That, that's not it. This is a holy place. This is a place where God is most felt and most known. And so we need to get that that's what this is talking about here. This is not talking about a geographical place and saying everyone's going to come to this place. Instead, it's the presence of God that matters. So let's look at the layout of this psalm. There's three parts. The first is the consecration of God's city. The second is the citizens of God's city. And the third is the celebration of God's city. And you'll see these on the screen as we go. So the first one, the consecration of God's city. That word consecration is a big word That means declaring something sacred. Usually it's used for churches. Usually it's used for places of worship. But this is what we see at the beginning. We see that that the psalmist is saying, this is God's holy place. It is sacred. It is set apart. Look at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city He has founded. This is God's city. God built it. God founded it. The first words literally in the Hebrew are his establishment. So it says he, God, established, and then the rest of the sentence. God chose this city. God chose this place for where he was going to have his people. And again, just a second ago, I said this is not a geographical place. And the reason we, we think this, and I'll, I'll show you some more in a minute, is because in that Second Samuel passage, somebody else made the city, David conquered it. So how did God establish it? God established it by saying, this is my Zion. I'm calling this Zion. This is where I'm going to make myself most well-known. Later on, we'll see that instead of this little picture of Zion that we get on this earth, we get the full meal when Christ comes back and we have a new Zion and he makes his home with us. Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. That word loves is in the present tense, which means it's unchanging and it's not going away. God loves Zion. God loves to share His presence. He's not a hidden God. So He says, "This, this Jerusalem, this Zion is My place and I, I, I like it more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Jacob represents Israel. So all the rest of Israel, I like them and I, they're my people, but my spot is in Zion. This love that is there. Now this is very much like the love that God extends to us in Christ. The love that we get from Christ is amazing. We, we get to get kind of sandwiched into the love that Jesus has experienced for all of eternity. See, Jesus didn't come into existence when Mary was quick, when the baby was in Mary, when the Holy Spirit came about. Jesus has existed for all of eternity. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit in a loving relationship all for eternity. And they, 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 they graft us in, they bring us in and share this love with us by creating us and then bringing us into this relationship. And so this love, this fatherly love that God has for His Son and the love that his Son has for the Father, we get to be wed right in there. When we are in Christ, we are loved like Christ. Like the only being that deserves the love, we get that love. Thanks be to Christ. So if we are in Christ, we belong to a city whose architect and builder is God. Look at Hebrews 11.10. For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation whose builder and designer is God. Again, Jerusalem was already built before David took it, so this is not talking about the physical Jerusalem. This is talking about something else, something that God built that we get to be a part of. Verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now, what are these glorious things? He doesn't tell us what they are, but he says the reason these things are spoken is because this is the city of God. And that literally means God possesses this city. It is His and no one else's. And then we get our first Selah. As we stop and we ponder, what does it mean that there is a dwelling place with man where he's going to make himself known? Stop and think about that for a second. You know, Jerusalem geographically right now is a divided city. It is a divided city, and in some portions very God-forsaken. But we know that there is a new Jerusalem coming. Revelation 21 tells us a new Jerusalem is coming out of heaven that is so enormous, there's not a single man-made structure that can compete with it. And there's no light needed because God is our light. And there's no death and there's no dying, which again, our world is trying hard to keep death and dying away. God goes, that's no big deal. It's gone. I've destroyed it. All of that is coming. And so this, this musical pause is meant to make us go, Yes, Lord Jesus, come. We want this new Jerusalem. So now we move into verses four through six. This is about the citizens of God's kingdom. Who is it that's gonna be here? Who is it that's gonna be in this, king, this city? So really, verses four through six are explaining what's so glorious about this city. You know, in our, in our world right now, there's two words that are out there a lot especially this month, inclusivity and diversity. Very popular words in our culture right now. As a matter of fact, we see many churches that will label themselves as an inclusive church. Unfortunately, a lot of times the inclusivity means that they compromise on the moral law of God, which instead, the diversity is not real diversity, it's judgment The Bible, though, on the other hand, says, yes, this is 100% inclusive. There's not a single human that Christ did not die for, no matter what their sin is, no matter what their proclivities are, no matter what they are tempted by. And the diversity comes from the fact that every single one of us is different, and our church is made up of every tribe, nation, tongue, skin color, ethnic, socioeconomic, all of it is there. And this is all because not the church is great, but because the gospel is great. So all are welcome. So true inclusivity and true diversity is found in one place and one place only. It's found in God's word. Verse four. Among those whom I, who, who know me, I mention Rahab, Babylon, and behold, Philistia, and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. So who are all these people? Now, I mean, you probably recognize Babylon. We talked about Tyre a few weeks ago. Philistia kind of sounds like Philistine, so you might get that. But what does Rahab and Cush have to do with this? Well, what what the psalmist is declaring here is he is saying, these are the enemies of God. These are the enemies of Israel. And he's saying, these enemies are going to be in my kingdom. These non-covenantal people will be with God. They will enjoy God. They will enjoy his presence and drink in his love. Now, how is that possible? And we'll get to that in a moment. So let's talk about who these are. Rahab and Babylon. These are the big baddies, right? These are the bad guy that they fight at the end of the movie with a big, huge fight scene. That's this group, right? Rahab is not the prostitute from Jericho. It's a Hebrew word. Her name is spelled differently. This is the word Rahab, which means chaos, or arrogance. It literally is the word big mouth. So you don't want to be called a Rahab because it means you have a big mouth. There was a mythical dragon that that was a, a monster called the chaos monster and its name was Rahab. And it's used in the Bible to reference one country and one country alone. And that's the country of Egypt. It always references Egypt. So whenever they say Rahab, it means Egypt. So this is Egypt, the the oppressors of Israel, that kingdom in the south that constantly wanted to conquer. Someday her citizens will bow the knee to God and be in God's kingdom. Then we got Babylon. Babylon, that great oppressor, the invader from the east. Babylon always represents confusion and oppression and conquering. Babylon who came and destroyed the northern and the southern kingdom and subjected Israel to exile. These Babylonians will see the light. These two terrible places full of enemies. Think about this. As the psalmist is writing this, there will be people that are listening to this song whose family members were killed by Egyptians or were oppressed and Murdered by Babylonians. This is, not, this is not something out there. This is really real to them. We don't really have a comparable right now in our culture that I can say, oh yeah, this is the enemy that's oppressing us right now. In Jesus' time, it would have been the Romans. For us, we don't have that. But understand that this is meant to be offensive because the gospel is offensive until you get it. Look at Romans 5, 9-11. Paul says, "...since therefore we have been justified by His blood," that means made right with God by Jesus' blood, "...much more shall we be saved by, by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ." through whom we have now received reconciliation. That reconciliation is between us and God. Our sin has created a a, a wall between us, and Jesus' death on the cross has broken through it. So no longer are we enemies. We are now a part of the gospel community. And this is why Rahab and Babylon can be included. So Rahab and Babylon, the two big superpowers. And then we get Philistia and Tyre. Now, Philistia and Tyre are not the big baddies at the end of the movie. No, it's like that rock in your shoe. Maybe really, really tiny, but it sure feels like a boulder at times. That's what these two represent. Philistia, they were on the coast to the west of Israel. This is where Goliath came from. This was the group that no matter how many times Israel went to war with, they never seemed to be able to get rid of them. And so the Philistines would, would come in and rape and pillage and steal from Israel. And they were a constant threat. And yet, God says, I'm making peace through my son with them. Tyre to the north was a commercial success story. They were a very wealthy ship port, ship building area. And so this was not some place that would come and conquer Israel, but they would tempt Israel through their wealth and their possessions. They worshipped money. They worshipped stuff. And yet God says, I'm going to make me their treasure, not their stuff. And so this is, I know this is hard to imagine, but these two groups were like the two farthest you could imagine from becoming followers of God. They were success stories. You know, Philistines, no matter how many times they went to war, they never lost. Tyre, they just kept getting wealthier. And yet God says these two nations are going to leave their success behind and come and follow me. This is like the Apostle Paul. He is he is a decorated Pharisee. He is the man, the last person you'd expect to be a follower of God. And yet God goes mine. Are there people in your lives right now that you look at and you go, "There's no way they're going to ever be a Christian." I just say bet. I say take that to the Lord and ask him, Lord, save that person. I mean, there's people in our world that are culturally right out there, and they are some of the most against God people. Do we pray for them, or do we just complain about them? There's no one outside the reach of God. If God can get Rahab, Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, and Tyre, there's no one outside of his reach. So if you think about these, these four, this is the four points of the compass, right? So we've got Babylon in the east, we've got Egypt in the south, we've got Philistia on the west coast, and then we've got Tyre in the north. These are the ones who are surrounded Israel. There was never a time that Israel was not surrounded by enemies. To this day, they're surrounded by enemies. And yet God goes, I'm gonna bring people from all of these nations into Israel. I'm gonna bring them in. So then what is this whole Cush thing? Well, this is the other. This is the outsider of outsiders. Cush is, is basically as far away as you could imagine as an Israelite from Israel. This was a place where the people were different skin color, different culture, completely different language, completely different religions, completely different way of doing everything. Cush is actually at the headwaters of the Nile, modern day Ethiopia. This would have been the most remote nation that Israel would have known about at this time period. Now, we know that there were other nations around the world, but Israel wouldn't have known about them at this point. And so this is saying, yeah, we've got north, south, east, west, all of our enemies, but anybody else outside of that that would come to conquer you, and yes, Ethiopia sent conquerors into Israel eventually. God says, I'm going to get them too. Everyone, everywhere is going to come in. What an astonishing reversal that God goes, I'm going to make your enemies into your family. Incredible. And we see that there's, whenever we see passages like this, there's always a, a, an immediate fulfillment, a near fulfillment, and then there's a future, a far fulfillment. And so I want to point out that this passage was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. When the church is born in Acts chapter 2, the, 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 the apostles go and they list, starting in verse 9, the list of all of the names. They have different names because they've broken their countries into two, but all of the surrounding nations of Israel are there, and what are they doing? They're hearing the gospel in their own language. Look at these. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So this is the near fulfillment, is that when Jesus comes and he dies and he goes up to heaven, the first thing that happens is the nations come streaming in. They come and they hear it in their own language, and these become the first missionaries back to their own countries so we see the near fulfillment we'll see a far fulfillment in a minute verse 5 and of zion it shall be said this one and that one were born in her for the most high himself will establish her when the people are singing this when when the when the israelites are singing this it's to remind them not only are they a city sitting on top of a hill but they're meant to be a beacon to the gentile world they're meant to draw people in there, there, there were, in the Old Testament, there were ways of adding people in to Israel. There were certain th- things they had to do. And that's just unheard of in this, in this time period. But it's even more so now. We know that every single one of us can be added in to Israel. Look at verse 6. The Lord records as He registers the people. This one was born there. This registering of the people is Him writing the names in the book of life. Philippians 4.3. In verse 5, we see people... Saying, you're born in Zion. There's no authority. But then the Lord steps in in verse 6 and goes, my authority says you are born here. You are born again here. You have the written right to entry into the Revelation 21 kingdom. And this is not a visa, right? This is not a green card. This is not saying you can come in for a time and do some of my work. No, this is you have a new citizenship, And this is not the best and the brightest. This is not a recruiting. This is God going, these are mine. And they're mine because they're mine. Because I died for him. And this is good news. Because if God can take his enemies and bring them in, then he can take us. Because as much as we go, hey, I'm nicer than fill in the blank, we are all by nature enemies of God. Barring a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on our lives, we are on our way to damnation. Because our, our, our sins are overwhelming. But the good news is, is that just like Babylon, Rahab, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush, yes, we fought against him, but when we lay down our swords and we submit to the king, he brings us in, and we are natural-born citizens of the kingdom. So now, how does this work? Okay, So we're looking at this, and it's all about Zion and Jerusalem. Now, I know there's been a lot of people moving to other states So is this like, hey, we need to start thinking about how we're all moving into Israel? Is that what this is talking about? No, this is not what this is talking about. And I've kind of alluded to it before, but I want to hit it now. The Bible is clear that there is a coming Jerusalem, and that is our eternal home. This new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven is where we're going to stay for eternity. It's not we're going to be floating around on clouds in precious moments, playing harps in some ethereal place. No, instead, when we die, we'll go to God's presence, and then when he says, I'm done with all of this, we are on this earth, a reborn earth, a renewed earth, in a new Jerusalem. And what's at the center of Jerusalem? God. God. God's presence will be there. And unlike Moses, who could only see the back of him when he went by, we get to see him face to face. And this is the future Zion. And the prophets got this. As the prophets were prophesying in Lamentations chapter 2, we see they're going, wait a sec. How can Zion be God's place when it's so bad? It keeps falling away. Isn't there something better? And this imperfect Zion where God made his presence partially known led those prophets, and leads us to go, wait, there's something more. If this is how great it is with this much of God, how, much of it, how great is it going to be when we get all of God? In other words, Jerusalem, the old one, points to the heavenly one. Let me show you this in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23, talking about this new Jerusalem. He says, the moon will be confounded and the sun will be ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Talking about what we see in Revelation. Micah 4.6, in that day, so in that future day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have been afflicted. He will gather them all to himself. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. And all the nations shall flow to it. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and decide for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be no need for any of that anymore. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians 4. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So again, we see there's this heavenly Jerusalem and there's this earthly one. The earthly one, like everything on this earth, is a shadow of what is to come. The real one is so much greater than the shadow. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Him coming back. Him coming back to get us and saying, you're a part of my kingdom. And how do we get in there? John 3.3, you know the verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, that heavenly kingdom that is coming down. And then Hebrews 12.22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Notice it says, you have come. Not you will come, but you have come. When we become followers of Christ, when we submit to his call on our lives, we are born again. And it's no longer if we get to heaven, but when. It's no longer, oh, I may come, it's I have come. And that presence in our lives is the proof that we have been born again. It's the rebirth certificate that we have in our lives. We are already enrolled in the heavenly Jerusalem, we are already citizens. I love this. Colossians 3:3 3, 3 touches this. "You have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory." I love that. But even more so, i gotta, I got to go to Ephesians. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2:12 2, through14. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. So there's that language again, about being in his citizen, being a citizen of his kingdom. You were outside, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, I love that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. That wall of sin has been broken down. In verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what this psalm is saying is that household of God is going to have plenty of his enemies that he has changed the heart of and made them followers of him. This is the hope. This is the good news. One author wrote, whenever I look around at a Christian gathering, I think to myself, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, there is no possible way that such a varied mixture of men and women could ever unite in joy. This indeed is the remaking of a broken world. If we think about what it, what it means when Christians gather on this day, on Sundays, across the world, and Saturdays as well, there are so many different individuals from everywhere gathering to serve the king, to worship the king. Christianity is the most diverse religion in the history of the world because we know the far fulfillment, right? The book of Revelation gives us the ending Okay, spoiler alert, it's all there. Revelation 7, look at what it says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the picture of where we're going to get to, and it's a picture of where we are now. The white robes aren't here. We still have sin that we have to die to daily. We're still being sanctified and made to look like Christ. But as we are moving forward, we recognize we are a part of a bigger family. Is there not a more appropriate place for a Selah at this point to stop and go, Wow, what great things to contemplate. And I love that our psalm doesn't stop here. Instead, the psalm goes to the natural next thing, which is a celebration. They celebrate God's city. Isn't this the perfect response? I mean, I, I, I picture it in my mind that I don't know how this came about, and we'll, I'll look it up when I get to heaven. But in my mind, I picture that the psalmist writes this good news down. And during that Selah, you know, Christian comes up, and he starts strumming on the guitar, and it's supposed to be all mellow. And all of a sudden, we have a group over here. You guys are the rowdy ones. You start dancing, and this group over here starts singing, and we've got people high-fiving, and there's just joy welling up. So that the psalmist had to go, i got to add another verse. I have to add another verse. And this verse is so good. Look at what he says in verse 10. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. They're singing, Lord, my joy comes from you. You are the welling up in me of joy in response to this good news. Does the grace of God Does does that ignite exuberant living and joy in your life? John 7.38 says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This word springs in the Hebrew has joy attached to it. It's like you're parched and you find that perfect spring that's just great tasting water. There's joy there. There's refreshing. There's ah, yes. See, Jerusalem was known for its springs. Jerusalem was a weird city. Most cities were founded on bodies of water. One, it kept enemies at bay, and two, it provided water for you. But in the the place where Jerusalem was, there was a little creek on the bottom of the valley, but on the top, there was nothing save for a spring. And that spring was what it was known for. And this is what we're referencing here. It's springing up from the inside. I want to share with you guys a hymn. Some of you may know it. It's called, Glorious Things to Thee Are Spoken. This is what it says. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? For salvation's walls surrounded, thy mayest smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters, springing from eternal love? Well, supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst assuage grace which like the lord the giver never fails from age to age now this this hymn is written by somebody you all know his name is john newton john newton the writer of amazing grace wrote this now if you know john newton's story john newton was not a good guy he was very corrupt He was a very awful man. He got to where he hated his father so much that he ran away and then he got in trouble with the law so he ran away again and got on a boat. This boat was a slave trading boat which he participated in for years and years. This is kind of the last thing on earth you would expect someone who was that awful to write. A song about a place called Zion. Heavenly Jerusalem. But you see, John Newton The Lord got a hold of John Newton's heart. And if you know the story of Amazing Grace, if you know what he did after he became a follower of Christ, you can say he's like the Apostle Paul, the last person we'd expected to be a follower of Christ. John Newton died December 31st, 1807. He wrote his own epitaph for his gravestone, and this is what it says. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was... By the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, and now I see what John Newton beheld. And yes, Amazing Grace is a phenomenal, phenomenal hymn. But what he also beheld in this one was the beauty of Zion. Not because it's just a place that comes down out of heaven, but because it's a place full of every conceivable permutation of human on the planet in there. This is how John, at the end of the book of Revelation, when he concludes his glimpse into our future, he finishes with, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. See, this is what the gospel does it gives everyone an opportunity to drink from the fountain that is the Lord. So, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our geographic location, no matter our track record, no matter what good things we've done, what bad things we've done, no matter what family we were born into, whether we have one or not, no matter the skeletons in our closet, no matter any other characteristic about our appearance, our wealth, and so on, the gospel provides forgiveness of sins for each and every one of us. It's heavenly citizens of all kinds of people of all earthly kingdoms will join us in praising God for all of eternity. We will rejoice with every nation, tribe, tongue, color, and culture. The gospel is for everyone. Is it for you today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your good news, your gospel of your son's life, death, and resurrection is not just something we talk about, but Lord, it's a reality. It is the hope that our world so desperately needs. Lord, our world is trying to get it through all sorts of programs and policies and laws and initiatives, but Lord, they won't get it without you. Lord, we won't get it without you. We will not get it unless we get your word in our hearts and the gospel welling up in us. I pray, Lord, we never move past the gospel, that Lord, we would live it out, that we we would proclaim it from the rooftops, and that Lord, we would allow it to change who we are. Lord, thank you for these enemies that you have made family. Thank you for taking this room full of enemies and giving them the opportunity to choose to be a part of your family. Thank you for the work that you did on that cross in our place. And Lord, I pray that we would humbly submit to it. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.